Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Kent Roche, a law professor at the University of Toronto and an award-winning scholar on a wide range of legal, legal subjects, including law enforcement, counterterrorism, and national security. His most recent book, Canadian Policing, How and Why It Must Change, has received considerable critical acclaim, including being shortlisted in 2022 for the Balsillie Book Prize. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book and its case for reconceptualizing how policing is carried out in Canada. Kent, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues and congratulations on the book. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Sean. You open the book with the following passage, quote, Canadian policing needs to change. It needs to become less violent and discriminatory, better governed and more effective. All of this needs to be done for the sake of both the public and the police, unquote. What's your main argument? What are the chief problems requiring a radical overhaul of policing in Canada? Well, policing is failing Canadians, both by uh, over-policing a wide variety of groups, uh, especially Indigenous people, uh, in the sense of, uh, you know, street stops, uh, violence uh, that could be avoided, uh, and so on. And, and, and this is obviously Indigenous people, but also Black people, people with mental uh, health challenges, and so on. But at the same time, Canada is under-protecting some of the very same groups. And so part of the book is to say that these concepts are actually related. They may seem counterintuitive, but they are related. The second main reason why I'm writing the book, and and I started it uh, uh, really uh, uh, around the time of George Floyd's uh, uh, murder, and of course, as we're talking uh, today, we're dealing with Tyree Nichols' uh, murder as, as, as well, is I really want this to be a call uh, to Canadians to demand better governance of the police. Uh, ultimately, uh, the kind of police we have, we should be able to assert uh, democratic responsibility and control. And, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to say that, uh, you know, since the book has been completed, Uh, I think we're moving backwards. So the book includes uh, uh, material on the policing of the so-called Freedom Convoy. Uh, But one of the things that really bothers me is whether it's uh, with uh, discourse over that or 
in relation to the Mass Casualty Commission, we have this sense, this growing sense, that the police have operational independence from uh, those who we elect in, uh, to govern them. Uh, and uh, I'm uh, very concerned that this ef effectively could make the police a law onto themselves. So there's, so there's really two main problems that the book addresses. One is how, you know, how do we understand and move away from this conundrum of both over-policing and under-protecting a range of disadvantaged and vulnerable groups? And how do we as a society uh, claim uh, a right to govern the police without interfering uh, with the operation of the rule of law? We'll come back to both of those main lines of analysis over the course of this conversation. But before we get there, I want to talk a bit about methodology. One of the most interesting parts of your research is that this isn't a typical academic book based solely on data and literature and so on. You've actually joined police officers on their shifts in different parts of the province. Do you want to talk about those experiences? How have they come to shape your views on these subjects? Yeah, no, that, um, thanks. I mean, you know, some of my early research with my colleague, Marty Friedland, was, uh, you know, uh, spending a lot of weekends riding around in the back of squad cars in Niagara Falls, New York, and Niagara Falls, Ontario. And although, you know, you could say that that research is dated, um, in Niagara Falls, New York, I saw something that can explain, I think, what happened with the awful, awful death of Tyree Nichols. There were so many police officers that whenever we responded to a call, inevitably, within a minute or two of the first cruiser arriving, there were three or other cruisers arriving. And there was also in Niagara Falls, New York, not something like the Scorpions, uh, kind of a street crime unit, but there was a swing shift that came on during the busiest times. I believe it was 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. And the officers on those uh, shifts were self-selected. They were, uh, I think, a little bit more aggressive. They wanted to be busy uh, and make arrests. Uh, and so, um, you know, that has stuck with me. Where uh, in Ontario, in Niagara Falls, Ontario, uh, there was a sense that there was only on a Saturday or Friday night at that time, six or seven cruisers, often one person cruisers, to police a much larger geographic and demographic area in Niagara Falls, Ontario. And so that led to, uh, you know, a much more reactive and cautious uh, policing um, style. Uh, so that uh, was some thinking that that has influenced me that, you know, it, having more police is not always the answer. And having police respond uh, to mental health calls is, uh, you know, uh, also not the answer. Now, since that time, I've also been able to work with the Upper Wash Inquiry uh, and uh, the Air India Inquiry 
and more more recently Justice Epstein's review of the Toronto Police missing persons um, uh, uh, investigations, and uh, that gave me a sense of some of the challenges because I mean the missing persons investigations are you know dealing with um, sexual minorities from uh, 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 who went missing from Toronto's gay village. And again, you have this idea that they were underprotected uh, in part because of this historical legacy of over-policing uh, gay men, in particular going back in Toronto to the infamous uh, bathhouse raids. And then finally, uh, I was able to spend uh, seven years in total being members of an expert panel assembled by the Canadian Council of Academies, first on the future of policing and second on policing of Indigenous communities. And in both of these, I was able to work with scholars, uh, non-legal scholars who are experts on policing, often from sociology. Uh, but even more importantly, I was able to work with um, uh, retired police chiefs uh, from Canada, uh, the UK, uh, and the United States and retired police officers, including retired indigenous uh, police officers. And so this this also gave me, I think, a perspective. And, and of course, you know, after George Floyd, there was a sense uh, of, um, you know, defunding the police. And although uh, I think the police uh, should be defunded to a certain extent, I really wanted to uh, write a book that both police officers and activists uh, would read, even if it was at the risk of uh, annoying uh, both of those sides. And then, you know, the last thing, and this may just reflect the fact that I'm getting older and I'm probably not going to write too many more more books, is I also thought I should be honest about my own personal history. I'm obviously a white man, uh, privileged as a law professor, uh, and I uh, reveal in the book that my life was saved when I was an infant and had a subdural hematoma uh, by a Montreal police detective who rushed me to the hospital, likely saving my life. And uh, in early years, before I wanted to be the catcher for the Montreal Expos, I very much wanted to be an RCMP officer and would ask my parents if I would reach the six-foot uh, height that was required. And uh, I've forgiven my parents uh, for lying to me uh, uh, because I'm quite short, uh, although I'm taller than my parents. Uh, but now that I have children of my own, including one who's a mental health nurse, uh, I have a sense of why uh, they didn't want to break that temporary dream uh, that I had as a child. So as you say, Kent, these are all of the various kind of factors and perspectives that go into the book and its analysis. I want to talk a bit about its origins. You mentioned earlier that you started working on the book following George Floyd's killing by police officers in Minnesota. What motivated you about his tragic murder? And what are the implications for Canada? Maybe to put it differently, are we wrong to assume that Canada is immune to these types of incidents? 
Yes. Well, I mean, so, uh, you know, one of my targets in a lot of my uh, um, recent writing is uh, this kind of knee-jerk attitude that I think some Canadians still have, perhaps less than there used to be, that, you know, problems, whether it's policing or wrongful conviction, racism, is a kind of an American problem. And although it is different in Canada and perhaps of a slightly lesser magnitude, uh, the uh, first substantive chapter of the book simply goes through what happened in Canada in June 2020, uh, which, of course, is the month after George Floyd died. And, you know, I, I didn't set out uh, doing this. I knew I was going to write a book, so I was paying uh, close attention to what was happening. And in that chapter, I go through uh, what happened in that one month. Uh, and, you know, it kind of starts with Chantel Moore's death in Edmonston, uh, Rodney Levy's uh, death in, uh, in um, uh, also in New Brunswick at the hands of an RCMP officer on, a, you know, uh, both uh, having to do with mental health, then uh, revealing Chief Alan Adams uh, um, being uh, subject to a flying tackle and grounding by a second RCMP officer who arrives in a parking lot in uh, in uh, um, uh, Fort McMurray, uh, the Regis uh, Korchinski Paquette uh, incident, uh, and the uh, Ezra Chowdhury death in Peel in Ontario. And so uh, that chapter, I hope, serves as kind of a wake-up call uh, to uh, readers that although um, it may not be as dramatic as George Floyd, in large part because there was very little video except in the case of Chief Alan Adam, um, uh, we do have uh, uh, similar problems in Canada. I want to take up your observations about the dichotomy between over and under policing and its connection to the problem of systemic discrimination. You cite, for instance, that 30% of our prison population is indigenous. Help us understand the role of police discrimination in producing these outcomes relative to other possible contributing factors. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, um, there, of course, is debate about uh, the issue of Indigenous overrepresentation. Is it all there uh, because of intentional discrimination, uh, whether it's by the police or prosecutors or judges? Um, I don't think that that's the case, but I do think that uh, it's a uh, huge problem uh, when over 30% of the prison population is Indigenous compared to 5% of the population. I mean, it is, uh, in comparative terms, uh, a grosser overrepresentation than we see in United States prison populations with the African American or Black population, or in New Zealand or Australia with respect to the Indigenous uh, population. But I think one of the things that I've learned over the years is that within these communities, 
this then becomes a personal issue. Uh, maybe, you know, for, for individuals, families, and friends. And so this means that if, you know, someone in your family, you think they have not been treated fairly by the police when they've been targeted or arrested or prosecuted, how are you going to feel when either that same person or that person's sister then goes missing? Are you going to feel confident in the police response? Are you going to think that the police are there genuinely to help you? And you have to overcome this kind of legacy of distrust. And so, um, you know, certainly with the Indigenous mur uh, uh, Murdered and Missing Women and Girls inquiry, they spoke an awful lot about how, um, you know, the legacy of over-policing creates a distrust that then may hinder the ability of police to solve crimes uh, involving those very same vulnerable groups and may hinder the willingness to uh, cooperate. So, you know, again, to go back to in the Justice Epstein's report, Missing and Missed, uh, she quite clearly found that the Toronto police uh, didn't have the awareness of the uh, LGBT uh, uh, community uh, that would have, um, you know, kind of um, uh, perhaps uh, uh, led to an earlier uh, uh, arrest of the person, uh, the serial murderer who was eventually uh, convicted with regards to uh, the uh, missing and murdered men. So, you know, again, this creates a kind of distrust with the community if the police are seen as, you know, those who take uh, sons and sometimes daughters away. Uh, and so this is something that I think we, you know, that it's a challenge that the police uh, face, but, you know, more importantly, it's a challenge that all of Canada uh, faces because, you know, too often we think of things as either you're the accused or you're the victim. And of course, you know, I've been involved with initiatives uh, with respect to Indigenous sentencing. And one of the lessons of that is often, even if the accused is guilty of committing a crime, that um, that is related to uh, the way that the person uh, has been treated and the challenges that the person uh, has experienced over the past. So this dichotomy between, you know, the bad guys and the good victims is uh, a very, dis you know, it, it just is an unrealistic and counterproductive dichotomy. The book covers various sources and causes for the growing problems with Canadian policing, including culture, governance, human resources, and even its underlying philosophy. Do you want to talk a bit about these underlying causes and how they may actually interact with one another? Yeah. No, no, thank you. That, that, that's, that's an excellent question. Well, I mean, um, the Canadian police have their historical origins with the Irish constabulary. 
And the Irish constabulary was always a much more militaristic operation than uh, the London uh, police, uh, uh, Sir Robert Peel's Bobbies. So uh, people may know that you know, in, in, in London, there was a lot of uh, a skepticism about uh, having public police. And one of the ways that uh, Sir Robert Peel overcame that was to say that this isn't going to be a kind of military occupying force like we have in Ireland or as is more the norm on the continent, that the police is going to be the public that they're just going to be one of us and also subject to governance uh, by the public. And so in in Canada, um, in part because we were a colony, uh, we really started off with uh, the Irish model, uh, with what has now become the RCMP, uh, created by Sir John A. Macdonald to open up the West, so obviously connected with the displacement of Indigenous people, but, but also just the colonial militaristic model. Uh, and if you look at provincial police forces, whether they be in Quebec, uh, Ontario, or Newfoundland, and for a time in Alberta, in British Columbia, there were very much in that model. And, you know, like the military, uh, the RCMP always wore red, whereas in London, uh, Peel's bobbies wore blue in order to distinguish them from the military. And I found an interesting historical antidote when Alberta for a time got rid of the RCMP, and of course they're thinking about doing it again. Uh, they gave the Alberta Provincial Police blue uniforms and they protested until they got red uniforms back because they wanted to be uh, kind of militaristic. So I think that um, this explains why we train police the way we do. Uh, there's a real emphasis on physical fitness, uh, 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 almost combat training. Uh, I've talked to RCMP officers who said, why do I have to ride a horse? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, our, uh, the RCMP training camp is called Depot uh, and is kind of sold by the RCMP as kind of a scary boot camp and called Depot because that's what uh, the Royal Irish Constabulary uh, called its headquarters in Dublin, uh, of course, when Ireland was all uh, a, a British colony. So I think there's a link between historical or origins, paramilitary image, paramilitary training, and lack of uh, 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 civilian governance or lack of effective civilian governance. So when you think about the RCMP or indeed the OPP or the Quebec police, uh, we have no uh, uh, police service board. Uh, we simply have the minister who is responsible, uh, so federally the minister of public safety and the commissioner. And right now, there is a fight between the minister who has told the commissioner to eliminate a certain whole uh, 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 type of neck hold and the commissioner 
who is apparently uh, dragging her feet about implementing that. And it seems to me that on matters like that in a democracy, ultimately, it's the responsible minister who uh, should win that battle. Now, you may say, well, you know, you're only saying that because you like the Minister of Public Safety. But, you know, it, it, it seems to me that, um, you know, if, if it is a matter for the Minister of Public Safety, if we change government and another government had another uh, idea and wanted to bring back that sort of neck hold, then I would say I might not like it as a citizen, but, you know, uh, that is what we need to do in a democracy, at least subject to a charter challenge or some other uh, 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 ruling. So I think that there is uh, really a kind of direct line between this paramilitary Irish constabulary origins and this government's deficit, uh, which uh, I think is, you know, one of the big themes in the book is this idea that the police are under government. The last thing I'll say is, uh, you know, and I've learned this, I guess, from some of my law and economics colleagues at the University of Toronto, is, you know, policing is real expensive. Uh, the average police officer earns over $100,000. I, I don't begrudge them that. But, you know, when we talk about, as we do now, adding more police officers, uh, we have to realize that with the one exception of Indigenous police forces, the cost of policing in Canada has been expanding uh, since about the 80s. And at some point, uh, we're going to have to rethink because adding more police uh, is certainly legitimate if, 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 if that's what we want to do as a democracy. But uh, they're very, very expensive. And at some point, it's going to be a choice between police and nurses and doctors. And, uh, you know, perhaps because I'm a father of a nurse, uh, my bet is that, um, you know, a lot of people want to make sure that doctors and nurses are, are there. And it's not clear to me that there is a linear relationship between police strength and public safety. And again, I go back to my initial experiences in Niagara Falls, New York, and Niagara Falls, Ontario. Niagara Falls, New York had lots more cops, uh, but I didn't necessarily feel safer. Indeed, I felt probably a little bit more uh, at risk when I was walking late at night in Niagara Falls, New York, as compared to Niagara Falls, uh, Ontario. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. 
Now back to our program. That's a comprehensive answer. Thanks very much for that. I I should just say in parentheses for listeners, there'll be parts of Professor Roche's analysis and recommendations that I I'm afraid we won't be able to get to in this conversation, including, for instance, his recommendation to effectively abolish the depot training model and replace it with a, a more decentralized model with training facilities and capacity across the country. But that only reinforces the need for you to ultimately read the book. If it's okay with you, I'd like to shift the conversation to solutions. Like most policy areas, policing in Canada touches on federalism questions, including the RCMP contract model with various provinces, which you've written elsewhere, quote, may be numbered. What's the role of federalism in your story and what ought to be done to improve the functioning of police services in light of these intergovernmental considerations? Yes. Um, so, I mean, there there's kind of two dimensions. One is uh, what is the respective role of uh, municipalities or regional government and the province with respect to uh, local or regional police? And of course, in Ottawa, we saw, you know, kind of the dysfunction of the Ottawa Police Service Board during the February convoy. And so I think one of the things that we need to think about is what is the legitimate provincial role with respect to policing and what is the legitimate local role? And I think that some of this is related to the fact that our constitution, the 1867 constitution, really doesn't conceive of local government as an entity, although it affects our quality of life greatly. Secondly, uh, federally, the RCMP provides local or regional policing in eight of 10 provinces and, very importantly, in all three territories. And so this means that an RCMP officer who is policing Nunavut uh, really has two bosses. One boss would be the responsible minister of the Nunavut government, and another boss would be the commissioner, and through the commissioner, the minister of public safety. And sometimes when you have two bosses, you have no bosses. And so one of the things that I, that I look at is that in the Yukon, uh, they have uh, come up with an innovative governance structure where at least at the territorial end, they have a police council, uh, which has Indigenous uh, representation, people appointed by Indigenous groups, the deputy minister of public safety. And if they wanted to take a you know, more community safety approach, there's nothing that prevents them from putting the deputy minister of health uh, or the minister of health uh, on, on there to the extent that police deal with issues of health or housing or so on. So 
I mean, I don't think that contract policing can disappear overnight. Uh, Surrey, the city of Surrey has gone back and forth largely because of concerns about how expensive it would be to have their own police force. Uh, but I do think that we need to have more effective local and provincial and territorial governance if the RCMP is to continue to be the local and regional police in most of Canada. And then at the same time, maybe the RCMP has to be broken into two different uh, entities because the RCMP is now uh, not doing a particularly good job of contract policing, which takes up most of its resources, but is also not doing a particularly good job of federal policing, whether it be national security or money laundering, uh, which takes up about a quarter of its resources. So again, if you try to do too much, you will often end up doing everything poorly. You argue in the book that defund the police is a, quote, divisive and ultimately unsuccessful political slogan, but that its underlying premise of shifting police resources to social services is broadly correct. Let me ask you a two-part question. First, what areas or types of social services do you think could produce a return on investment in terms of reduced crime and criminality? And second, how limited could policing be to have us still able to maintain basic order and stability in our society? How should we think about that, Professor Roche? Is there an optimal level of policing resources? Yeah, I mean, you know, I see that as much as kind of a research question. And so, you know, one of the things that uh, I, I mean, I mean, certainly since I've written the, the book, I mean, defunding the police seems in many ways even more de dead, uh, that police budgets, uh, including in Toronto, uh, are in, in, in increasing. Uh, but I talk in, in the book about a, a report that was issued by the Toronto Neighborhood Centers called Rethinking Community Safety in 2021. And interestingly enough, uh, it was signed on by the Gerstein Center, which does a lot of mental health issues, and it was signed on by Black Lives Matter. And it proposed reallocating 10% of the Metro Toronto's police budget, which is over $1 billion, to community programs. And the community programs can, you know, deal with mental health, can deal with housing, can deal with kind of frequent customers of the system, uh, can deal with the homeless, uh, and so on. But part of its plan was that some of that money should also be spent on evaluation, what works and what doesn't work. Canada doesn't spend nearly as much work on, you know, uh, uh, enough money on researching what works and what doesn't work. And we shouldn't think that one size fits all. So as a starting point, I think 10% of the police budget uh, 
uh, going to creative uh, concerns uh, and 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 subject to evaluation uh, would have been a defensible approach. Now that still would have left. Uh, Toronto with a $900 million budget. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I certainly realize that, like everyone else, the police are the one 24-7 uh, sort of response. But even doing things like, um, you know, triaging 911 calls, uh, what is best to send the fire department and the paramedics? When do they need the police? These are all things that I think we need to do. I fear now, uh, especially in Toronto with, a, you know, a very high profile uh, public crimes on the TTC and elsewhere, that we will simply, uh, you know, go back, have almost like, like Pavlov's dog to the idea that, um, you know, uh, throw mo more money at the police. But, you know, again, the comparison becomes down to what is the marginal cost of adding one more police officer, not only at his or her 100,000 plus salary, but also the attendant court costs and other costs versus funding a community organization, which has the trust of a particular community and can employ volunteers in a much more economically efficient way than the police. To that point, I'm speaking to you from New York City, which in the 1990s essentially adopted a policy of over-policing to deal with concerns about criminality and public safety. These efforts were subsequently criticized for some of the issues that we've been discussing and in turn led to, for a lack of a better term, a more humanistic approach. In the past five years or so, however, we've witnessed renewed concerns about crime and public safety, and it's led to something of a ratcheting back in the city's policing philosophy. I guess my question for you, is there a trade-off here? And if so, how does your policing model aim to strike that balance? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that's where governance comes in. And so, you know, certainly the broken windows policy uh, was supported by New Yorkers at the time. And so I think that you know, part of the cost of democratic policing is that, um, you know, the public has a right uh, to make mistakes and uh, that, uh, but, but at the same time, I think if we invest more in evaluating uh, you know, whether uh, things like broken windows work or comparing it to other alternatives. So, you know, in Ontario, we have community health, uh, uh, health and well-being plans where we're trying to take a more multidisciplinary approach. And, you know, again, it seems to me that this is largely a governance problem in that we have the health silo, we have the housing silo, and we have the police silo. But we know in the real world, these things are all connected. And so I see these kind of pilot projects that were proposed in the Rethinking Community Safety 
a report, which is a terrific report, well-researched, only 20 pages, uh, um, as a, a, a start. But I don't try, and I don't think it would be right, to present one blueprint that would apply from coast to coast to coast, because that would be at odds with my uh, sense that policing no less than health or uh, or any other government service should be run uh, should be subject to democratic direction uh, through elected governments. This has just been a, a great conversation. I appreciate your time. May I, I wrap up with a final question about an, another line of your research on the issue of wrongful convictions? Let me ask a two-part question. First, do we have a sense of how common they are in Canada? And second, what are some of the main factors or patterns that you've come to identify in your research? Yes, well, uh, thanks Thanks for asking. Uh, um, with, some, uh, um, uh, 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 with Amanda Carling and some students at the University of Toronto, we are going to launch uh, on, uh, on the 20th of, this, uh, of February uh, Canada's first registry of wrongful convictions, and it will be at www.wrongfulconviction.ca. And uh, we have recorded 83 remedied wrongful convictions in Canada. Now, what are the number of unremedied wrongful convictions? Nobody knows uh, and nobody ever will know. Uh, but the police do play a role in wrongful convictions. And one of the things uh, that is striking from our research is that one third of the wrongful convictions are cases where no crimes were ever committed. So cases like the Charles Smith case, where someone had suspicions and thought that babies had died on purpose, whereas when others looked at it, Unfortunately, years later, they found out that the cause of death was natural or, or, or accidental or undetermined. So, you know, again, this goes into the fact that, you know, to the extent the police are responsible for these uh, imagined crime wrongful convictions, which are, you know, one third of our remedy wrongful convictions, this underlines another danger of stereotype. So the stereotype is not only, you know, the proactive uh, profiling stop, uh, but it can actually, in some cases, go as far as a wrongful conviction. Now, having said that, uh, one of the messages in my next book, which is called Wrongfully Convicted, and will be out in April with Simon & Schuster, is that uh, the police um, shouldn't always be blamed uh, for what is sometimes called tunnel vision. Uh, you know, we think of David Milgard, Guy Paul Moran, uh, the famous wrongful convictions as case of police tunnel vision, and they may well have been. But one of the things that I argue is tunnel vision is simply confirmation bias. It is something that we all do when we have a mass of conflicting data. And that if police, and this goes back to Justice Epstein's report, one of her findings is the police didn't use case management systems, computerized case management systems, computerized victim linkage systems. 
And by using computers, this is a way that we can counter the limits of our own mind, which is we all form tentative hypotheses. And I explain this to my students by saying, when I mark your exam, which has three questions, I'm aware that if you do really poorly on the first exam, I have to fight the tendency to think you're going to do poorly on the next two questions, right? So, I mean, it, it's confirmation bias or tunnel vision, unfortunately, is just the way our minds work. But good policing can also use things like case management and victim analysis, which can reveal both the true perpetrator in cases where there is real crime, but can also help reveal when the police have the wrong perpetrator and when they may have wrongfully convicted someone or be close to wrongfully convicting someone. Oh, well, that's great. I encourage listeners to check out the site. And of course, Professor Roche's forthcoming book. We'll have to have you back on the podcast then. But for now, I'm grateful for you to have joined us today. The book is Canadian Policing, How and Why It Must Change. Kent Roche, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcasts with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.